Welcome everyone to our podcast, Land and People. I'm Melissa Kamara. I am a conservationist and an artist here on Hawaii Island. And I'm Clay Trauernicht. I work at the University of Hawaii at Manoa in the Natural Resource Environmental Management Department. That's my 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 day job. Um, and I work on fire and ecosystem restoration, conservation, watershed stuff. Um, yeah. And we uh, have a cool guest today. Yes, we do. We have been talking to, I realize, a lot of uh, plant people, which we love our plant people. <laughs> I'm married to one. There's one over here yeah. on the line. And um, and then we also spoke with Sheila Conant, who is an incredible uh, bird biologist. And we've spoken to some amazing educators in our last couple podcasts. And now we are going back to biology again with our next guest, um, Steve Montgomery, who is an incredible entomologist. He's many, many things. And I should add that he's came recommended by several people who listened to earlier episodes. Several people were like, you gotta, you gotta get Steve Montgomery. Yeah. On the, on the- he's on several lists of like conservation heroes. One of the top go-to people when you're talking about insects in Hawaii. So, you know, that's such an under appreciated, understudied area of biology. Well, it gets so specific. So, I mean, you laugh because you, you know, you think about your plant families, right? And like an insect, entomologists like laugh at you. Like that's just like the starting point, you know, there. And and then, yeah, I would add too, that we got a lot, we talk a lot about plants because all the, you know, all of them, the few, the insect people that I know here are are all very good with their plants as well. You kind of have to be, especially the ones that are doing the kind of work that Steve does where it's very field focused what's out there yeah and what are the, what 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 are they doing in the system right which is um you know it's well he's talking a lot about cataloging but it's far beyond just cataloging right he's really was trying to figure out what what are they associated with and then really turning back his focus towards the, the the bigger habitat picture like if you protect these plants and the kind of things that make up the sort of foundation of the ecosystem um you know you the insects will be fine and i, I really identified with that because I myself started off doing wildlife stuff after college. And then it was pretty, only a few jobs into that, that I was Mm -hmm. like, this is ridiculous. You know, you, you trying to work on this marbled murelet. I worked on a couple projects. Like all you have to do is not chop down redwood trees yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they'll right. be fine right habitat. so that idea of like yeah like oh habitat right habitat. okay so, um, yes coming back to the basics anyway i don't mean to like diminish anyone out there who's interested in marble murelets and they're cool <laughs> birds you know but that idea of like and it's you know it's a function again of of like legal structures like we have the endangered yes. species act that's usually what drives a lot of the work here for better or for worse so it's again a very kind of reducing things down to what species we need to protect and i mean that's a whole other conversation well yeah we could get into quote unquote charismatic megafauna for uh, uh, those of you yeah. who want to nerd out on um fancy terms which basically means like so much of the protection has focused on things that we can see and insects and plants as we have talked about a little bit before have come rather a little bit late yeah like you don't get love for posting plant pictures on um like social media but then once you look post a pretty cute little bird or something right everyone and much less insects you know posting caterpillars and but here we are we're in the thick of it we're in the thick of it yeah (laughs) 
get out there and post those amazing insect pictures because I personally love to paint. And uh, I guess we do need to do the caveat of... Yeah, just I'll say the views uh, expressed by us and our, our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the people funding this or where we work or where they work or any of the other things. And so like, you know, we're really trying to create a space here where folks can, you know, speak freely. And, um, you know, and I think I was impressed today by how much or the breadth of kind of engagement that Steve participates in. I I had no idea. And you'll, you'll get to hear a lot about how the different avenues that he engages with the public and kind of really, uh, you know, I think it's just expression of his love for this place um, fundamentally, which is what we're kind of trying to get at here. So without further ado, here is our next guest, Stephen Montgomery, Professor Emeritus of Genetics and Molecular Biology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Well, welcome, Steve, to our podcast. You are our first official entomologist on our program. I'm so curious what drew you to the insect world. Were you looking at insects when you were a child? Like what? Tell me about that interest. Yes. When I was in the second grade, uh, there were some giant cecropia moths uh, hooked together end to end on the playground. And uh, uh, I, I just walked to school a block away and I was able to take them home and find a cigar box and and uh, dry them out and use some sewing pins to begin an insect collection. When I was 10, I learned from my older brother who had been a 4-H club member studying leaf, making a leaf collection in forestry. He said, wow, you'll be eligible at 10 to make an insect collection in the entomology program. So I joined up and each summer I did that for, for the next day decade and finally uh, 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 my collection won the sweepstakes award at the indiana state fair and uh, i realized that uh, you might be able to spend your whole life collecting insects and getting paid for it and studying them and dealing with those problems so uh, the 4-H program was really great because they they introduced you to the economic importance they connected you with extension scientists who could advise you and when i was 12 my collection was shown at a convention of entomologists and uh, a scholar from the Smithsonian noticed a, a large fly about as big as a carpenter bee in there, which I called a bumblefly because I could tell <laughs> it wasn't really a bee. It, it was a fly that mimicked the bee. And he asked if I would donate it for his research. Wait, was this at age 10 or 12, did you say? 12. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I, I responded to him and said I'd be happy to to donate it, just give me the instructions on how to mail it. I had a paper out and the guy who collected money from my paper deliveries uh, told a reporter that this might be of interest. So I got interviewed and the article that came out the next week was uh, Clay Township Boy 12 Finds Rare Fly. Cool. And then uh, a few months later, I was elected class president of my... <laughs> so I realized that there were a lot of people interested in bugs and maybe I should keep keep collecting them. And I, I give my sister credit because she's the one who actually saw this bumblefly flying around in, in our parents' bedroom and asked me to apprehend it. Just go grab the net. Yes. Um, so it's still in the Smithsonian. And I, I got a copy that, that at age 13, they sent me the annual report that listed my donation. Cool. That's, that's amazing. I mean, to have that sort of like drive when you're that young, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I don't think I knew what in the world I was going to be doing till later, but that's that's amazing. 
I was pleased to discover a book when I was in high school. It was written about America's birthplace of ecology. Uh, you might have heard of Cole's Bog. <laughs> Professor Coles at University of Chicago took students to the Lake Michigan sand dunes on the south tip of the, of the lake. One of his students, May Thielgard Watts, wrote a book called Reading the Landscape. And it was such a revelation having visited that park with my family. Uh, I mean, all 10 of us uh, camped out for a few days reading the landscape to me was a, a, a way to, to look at landscapes wherever I visited and at age uh, 19 I got to um, visit Oklahoma as part of an insect ecology project, go out and see a, a real prairie and so that, that was really useful. You're talking about going to you know these natural areas, I think you said in Michigan right? And with your family and your camping and you're like, you know, just reading about and studying and, and then you're coming to Hawaii. Were you coming here to do graduate work or had you already done your graduate work and then you were coming here to teach? And I came because uh, my girlfriend twisted my arm <laughs> and insisted it was time for me to meet her mother. Oh. And uh, it took longer than a couple of weeks that we anticipated to secure the approval that we needed. So I spent five <laughs> months and nevertheless failed. So uh, I decided there was a lot more to do here in addition to courtship. So uh, I enrolled <laughs> in the US and uh, it became hard to leave. Yeah. Back in 68, I took uh, plant ecology from Richard Vogel, who sat in for Dieter Muller and Bois. And then I took his class the second year of plant ecology. So all of that helped me do a better job when I was searching for the host plants of, of Hawaiian insects like the mm -hmm. Drosophila. Yeah. Right. And I started bringing in by focusing on Halapepe, for example, mm. or or Opuhe, insects associated with them that, that were totally neglected, and then others that seemed quite rare. So that was very, very rewarding to combine my interest and knowledge of, of botany with uh, with entomology. And <clears throat> I stuck with flies until 75 when I decided uh, there were so many people that were incredulous that I said the that the flies were being eaten by caterpillars. I had to prove it to them. So, so did you? <laughs> well, I still have have some unbelievers, but it's, they, they just need to look at the video footage uh, that's posted on the internet and some yeah. of these films I've helped with yeah. and go out themselves and look. They're they're very cryptic. They're very well camouflaged. And, and uh, there are some species that were uh, adults will come to lights and they'll lay eggs and you can raise caterpillars and see what they look like and you can guess where they might be hiding but still we haven't found them in their natural haunts oh, interesting you're just thinking about that transition was when you came to Hawaii, you talked about kind of getting in Drosophila. Obviously, it's like a big group for here. And this sort of one of the stories of this adaptive radiation and, and evolution here. I mean, was the shift from that or the, your interest in that to begin with? I mean, is it because it was they were well described? I took a class uh, and Elmo Hardy noticed that I was pretty good at identifying flies from my years of uh, amateur collecting and said that uh, he had some some grant money and he, so my assignment on this this new program uh, as I began graduate work for a master's program was to understand more of these life histories and I was making some good progress it just seemed like the 
the, the massive hordes of Drosophila in the mountains captured me mm-hmm. just by their, their their dominance. I was producing a little bit of information about the other flies, but they were were so they were so mm-hmm. few and they weren't so interesting, and that people weren't able to identify them as rel- relatively. And there were the, the, these teams of other scholars who wanted to do the genetics or the or the behavior after I learned what the ecology was and and made it possible to get specimens and establish lab colonies and send them around to our colleagues. So it it was really wonderful to be part of a team that was making all kinds of headway with that that interdisciplinary approach. It's thinking about insects. It's such a challenging group to, you know, quote unquote, manage, right? Like, how do you actually... We can be seeing declines, right? Some of the, a lot of these species are becoming rare and they're extirpated. I don't know enough about the diversity that there was to even know what's going on right now. Um, but that are the, such the fundamental building blocks that like the ecology of these insects and so much of our sort of conservation work here is focused on plant stability, right? And that I think when you think about insects, it's like, first of all, do you have the expertise to even know what you're working with? And second of all, making those connections to the the you know other elements of the ecosystem um and then how do you like how do you manage for these things right how do you actually improve conditions to to, for these for these insects to persist um it's like just huge huge questions yes well that was the question i was asking and it became obvious to me the best way to improve conditions is to preserve the very plants that they depend on as their only host plant and it, it seemed outrageous that in our national park at volcano in the 68 72 period there were 14,000 goats running around within its boundaries which yeah. were unfenced right in and out of the the park so a lot of us uh, uh, began writing letters and, and talking to officials and and supporting a, a fencing program and I, I give credit to Don Reeser as a ranger and Brian Harry who's now retired here in Hawaii uh, for convincing the Congress mm-hmm. to put those funds in and to set up novel programs, really, really unique. Uh, uh, you could become a deputy ranger and go in and shoot goats and haul them out and use the meat as, as your family wanted to. So they did remove all 14,000 in their mm-hmm. progeny. And that's a model that we were able to use uh, at Halakla National Park soon thereafter. Right. And when they finished using the, the, the radio collars that they put around the Judas goats, um, I began writing letters to the Navy about their lack of compliance with executive order from President Eisenhower that said the Kaholavi will have no more than 200 goats. There were untold thousands devouring the flora of Kaholavi right. at that time. And uh, it, it just didn't make sense uh, that the agency responsible for de- defending America's soil was, was allowing it to be washed into the sea. So they borrowed the, the collars from the National Park, which had finished them with them, and they, they hired a biologist away from the state, uh, uh, Sadler, I think it was, Sutterfield, Tim Sutterfield. And within a year or so, they completed the job and there have been no goats since uh, 1980. And there's a chance now to recover some of them and to, to plant things that will survive. Right. The goats were the curse of, of Vancouver and the other European explorers who were thinking, well, when we come back for short on lever actions, we can always get some goat meat because right. goats can supply without any standing water. But the owners of Nihau wisened up and realized this was a yeah. bad deal and they eradicated goats. And by 1980, 
on the island of Lanai with Peter Connolly's energies, uh, the private owners succeeded in removing them from that island. And now we have a plague of goats in North Kona that are moving south. And it's really sad, uh, even though we have an endangered species law. Uh, I did a, a talk at the recent conservation conference. We need we need, we need to execute, execute these memorandums of understanding to, to protect the plants because uh, thousands of goats are moving into new habitats where they've never lived before right. on our flows along Hinalani Road, for example. So do you think that that, I mean, the, I don't know if it's reluctance or not, but just the inability to kind of respond in that sense, is that a capacity question or is it just more of like the... You know, having that as a priority, like capacity by that, I mean, you know, having an agency like DLNR who would potentially deal with that being underfunded versus just like having that be a priority um, and or and or pressure, you know, responding to pressure from from other interests like groups like hunters and things like that. Well, e- each case needs to be evaluated. And, and, and here we have private land where as a condition of being able to develop that land for commercial uses and residential uses, 150 acres were designated as critical habitat and an agreement was was made that it would be fenced very soon. Well, that was six years ago and it's still not fenced. Steve, can I ask you um, what critical habitat? Well, the critical habitat would be for, for the plants. So there's an isodendron, which is a shrubby violet that's unique to the to North Kona and there are other plants like Neuraudia, and there's Bidens, a native Koko'olau. Uh, there are some scattered remnants of the Uhi Uhi, which is a magnificent leguminous tree with, with pink flowers. Yeah. And a lot of these are, are host plants where pollen is collected by the yellow-faced bee, some of which are also endangered. But it's, it's the, the foundation would be the plants. If you can save the plants, then the insects will probably be saved along with it. So when I, when I go back this month, uh, I'll be checking on the condition to see if the fence has been built yet and and contact the officials who are responsible for overseeing the memorandum. Even the, the, the owners who are part foreign, uh, try to arrange a meeting with them to, to let them know if they're absentee owners. This is special in Hawaii. Yeah. We treat plants with respect and we value them and not, not allow them to be fodder for goats that were delivered from Europe uh, centuries ago. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me because I know, again, this is jumping ahead, but since we're talking about all of these related issues, like you've you've done so many different types of jobs, right? Like you've been in the university, you've, um, you know, um, you've been a researcher. I didn't know this. I looked at this up too, that you were director of National Wildlife Federation. You're doing field biology surveys nowadays and like thinking about like your role in the Land Use Commission and how you've, you know, helped to inform uh, and maybe help set priorities as it relates to critical habitat and other land use issues that you care about. I realized that a, a lot of the, the problems with our flora and fauna were because the leaders weren't appreciating what was special and what was happening to it. So I ended up uh, getting to know some of these leaders like Senator Nadal Yoshinaga, Senator Tony Chang, both are passed on now, but they were chairman of committees and, and uh, they asked me to write resolutions and I said I'd like to serve on a state commission. Uh, they showed up to testimony, give testimony and support. So I saw that my role as a, as a scholar and as a, a citizen with interest in, in nature was to help these leaders improve our policies. It didn't make sense to me that the state was collecting deer on the island of Lanai and getting them ready to release them on the big island on state land. Yeah. Well, we, we hadn't made any studies of dry forest uh, and the impact on, 
on Lanai. So we got a, a grant and several of our students did some field research in 71 about that. And around the same time, while we were asking for an environmental impact statement to be done before the state released them on a new island, uh, fortunately, uh, the governor agreed with us. And during that delay, by the time the EIS was, was finished, they decided, well, this isn't such a good project. Let's just drop it. So the Big Island never legally got deer on it the way Maui did. Look at Maui now. Thousands yeah. thousands of deer are doing millions of dollars worth of damage and fences are having to be put up to save farmers' crops. It's yep. a, a blunder of our society that our government worked to, to spread those deer over there. And George Monroe, in his his life history of on Lanai said that my biggest mistake with recommending to the Baldwins, the owners, that they bring deer from Molokai to Lanai. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. I just remember 16 years living on Maui and I was always worried just like for my personal safety driving around like and I'm frankly just glad that you know I'm on Big Island and I do these long drives because we're I mean I live far an right. hour Hilo an hour from Kona and I'm just every time I get in the car to go grocery shopping which is once a week I'm just like I'm so glad that we don't have to deal with deer over here sometimes <laughs> we don't make progress on our environmental issues in, until the tombstone effect kicks in yeah. on the big island a motorcyclist encountered a donkey on the on the Queens Highway and they both died in that interaction uh. and I have a friend who was driving at night and there were six black goats sleeping mm. on a black pavement oh, man. the car was totaled the goats were totaled fortunately mm-hmm. my friend survived in good condition but how many disasters like this do we have to have for realize we need to do fencing we need to restrict right. the, the, the areas that goats are allowed to expand into. These areas are in Waikoloa, either Kohala or, or North Kona. But it, it is a serious health situation. And, and perhaps I should emphasize to some of these private landowners that they may be liable for, for not dealing with their livestock infestation when it comes to feral goats. Well, it's... I mean, again, it's like coming back to, to capacity and regulations. There's all these sort of interesting dynamics that come to play when it's tar- trying to take care of these things. And the deer on, on Maui, you know, we've had workshops and things with grazers and they're just getting hammered, right? But they don't have the resources to deal with it. And then same thing in Molokai, it's kind of just like tragic right now what's happening there as far as, um, you know, the impacts these animals are having. Um, the botanist Charles Lamereau told me that the, the real solution for the deer problem on Lanai would be to introduce the Bengal tiger. <laughs> I, was, I always thought mountain lions would be cool. <laughs> I, I thought maybe that came up a few times with it, with Fern Duval in, in a MISC meeting once or twice. But yeah, the Bengal tiger would be much more appropriate for this axis deer. <laughs> The natural control agent. I'm yeah. a big supporter of biological control mm-hmm. insect pests. And uh, right now we have a, a proposal for the black twig borer. I think it, or the coffee coffee bean borer is the one that's a real target. And mm-hmm. we need to be enlarging our laboratories, both in Hilo and Honolulu, so that we have the quarantine facilities to do these yeah. um, host specificity mm-hmm. tests and, and mm-hmm. determine whether they're safe. Um, there are many biocontrol agents. Agents that are awaiting in the native homes of these of these pests that are new to Hawaii, right? That have to be studied so that we can resolve our problems. Because uh, it, it's so sad that the Brazilian strawberry guava has recently exceeded the number of ohia lehua trees in the Hawaiian Islands. Oh boy! 
the increase is so meteoric yeah. that the only way to to save our native flora is to bring about natural controls through biological uh, agents. Yeah, well, the it's been cool. The Tectococcus uh, biocontrol is getting around. And it's like you see it establishing. It's pretty widely in the, the wine eyes and in colas as well. Um, and folks are, are in yes, intentionally it's, introducing it's, it. It's been interesting it's to watch. behaving precisely as the test predicted it would behave. Yeah. It is reducing the seed output and the yeah. vigor of the plant, but it's not killing any plants. That, that's a testament to the work Tracy and his, his colleagues mm-hmm. have done in those quarantine labs, which are very yeah. cramped for space. And it's a sad commentary that refugees from Brooklyn and other places in in the continent delayed by a couple of years the progress of this uh, because it, it could have been released <laughs> over a year earlier had not Sidney Singer and his uh, uh, oh boy, misinformed yeah. coterie delayed it with irrelevant questions. He had no perspective right. on plant ecology in the process. So yeah. we, we need to do more of a public education effort on how it is the modern science of biocontrol Mm -hmm. is practiced. To say that, well, the mongoose doesn't eat the rats like they're supposed to, that's irrelevant to these very carefully studied, environmentally assessed projects that we're doing these days. I was around in stewardship when those debates were happening. I can't even call them debates. When the, like this bad PR campaign was happening, right? And do you think, and it's been some time, so I, I ask the two of you, do you think conditions have improved I mean, amongst the public or do you think it's the same or is just different or wh- what do you think related to biocontrol, right? Because yeah, you always do hear that junk example of mongoose and so forth, but like, where are we now with people and biocontrol? It's improved a little bit, but we have a, a long ways to go. I've heard opponents of a, a recent scientifically based proposal say, well, what about the case of the rosy wolf snail that was brought from Florida to uh, attack the African snail? That caused mm-hmm. some problems. We need to remember that. Well, that's another bad example mm-hmm. from the 50s. Yes, we have learned from that and we do environmental mm-hmm. assessments and we don't take things from one continent and expect them to work solving problems from a from a separate continent, mm-hmm. that's just uh, plain dumb, and and that's right. not going to be repeated. So the starvation tests are the most clear way to to prove. I mean, you if you take a crop plant like say macadamia and and offer that to a to a caterpillar, and it starves rather than eat that, it's only option. Then you know that if you bring that caterpillar to eat Coster's curse or myconia or ivy gourd or whatever weed you have that is going to at least uh, be so, so host specific it won't become a pest in macadamia yeah. or mm-hmm. in the list of other crops you tested on in, in the laboratory. It's ironic because it's like a real, it's not only rigorous, but it's a real simple process to to explain. <laughs> I mean, it's really, you know, it's really, it's, it is just a function of, I mean, it's not difficult to explain what the process looks like yeah. and how what the yes. outcomes could potentially be. I do think that probably my take on it is just that it's not well understood the work it takes to protect Mind. the remnant habitat areas in the sense that like, you know, 
any tools that we have, we, we can't take them off the table. Like the fact right. that you say, oh yeah, don't use biocontrol because there's this, you know, risk, mm-hmm. which is not even documented. And then th- I think mm-hmm. that sort of shows a demonstrates a fundamental lack of understanding of just like mm. how uphill the battle is to kind of hang on to. And I mean, I hate using war metaphors, but it is just, it's like hard, hard work. And that comes up all the time, actually, in these discussions with the public where you're like, well, what kind of technologies can help us? And that's a really like clear example, um, biocontrol research as a, as a technology that can provide a lot of help because the day in, day out, it's pulling weeds, you yeah. know, like you're up, you're hiking the mountain and pulling weeds and mm-hmm. um you know and that not to mention what the discussions around um you know the use of herbicides and things like that that's a whole yes. other red flag for the public but yeah. i think just getting that message out how how much work it takes another example of why it's so important to be able to read the landscape some people will look at a, a, a green mountainside and think think it's oh it's so wonderful just it's so rich rich green if it happens to be 90 percent brazilian guava and and 10% Clydemia herta from Central America. Yeah, it's beautiful, but gosh, what happened to all the Hawaiian species that used to be yeah. there? The ferns and whatnot. We were just having the same exact conversation, same conversation. with Pauline Sato yesterday, you know, in her work with Malama Learning Center and just stepping back and unpacking that whole idea yeah the, the 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 message that like it's not you know green is good but then we have to get more nuanced right that that you know it's it's yeah. not just green we need it's the right kind yes and we made great great progress in the 50 years that i've been watching it's mm. uh possible mm-hmm. now to go to a, a garden shop and buy native plants. It was impossible yeah. in the 70s. Right. Right. I remember right. when uh, there was a radio show, Green and Growing with Horace Clay. Uh, one of my my friends who was quite a good ecologist, uh, Wayne Gagné, called in and said, you know, wh- why don't you talk about the beautiful native plants? Why aren't they um, used and planted? And, and they just weren't available. But now their whole nurseries right. are specialized on nothing but Hawaiian plants. So yeah. I'm very, very encouraged by this development. Element and it's helping the general public perceive the difference and recognize the benefits. So uh, it's not time to wring hands, but keep doing more of more yeah. of the same to uh, implement biocontrol, build these new labs. The ancient lab we have on King Street is totally inadequate for the state to do the job. Mm-hmm. The Forest Service needs a new lab on the Big Island or, or put in the, the Ag Research Center in, in Hilo, for example, where we can do lots of field tests uh, after we do the quarantine tests. The cramped spaces we have now are causing us to have a backlog of, mm-hmm. of weeds that need biocontrol that aren't getting it and they're mm-hmm. spreading like crazy. We've worked on some really urgent ones like fireweed in the past uh, because ranchers were complaining so yeah. much. But uh, the ones in the forest, the, the hikers need to complain about that like they did about Coster's Curse and Banana Polka. And, right. and we've made yeah. progress on that. Natural agents coming in from the new world and being tested. And some of them are tested right there in the neotropics uh, yeah. with our colleagues mm-hmm. who we hire to do these starvation tests. Well, the benefits are like they could far uh, extend far beyond Hawaii, right? This is a huge thing that comes up and I've worked in Micronesia and, they, they, you know, the folks doing the invasive species control, they're just clamoring for, for biocontrols and, and, you know, the capacity to test for these things, which is kind of a segue because I know from stories, uh, particularly from Steve Perlman, that you've worked in some other islands. So I'm kind of curious just to any like 
kind of stories or parallels or even lessons, you know, that you kind of drawn from working in other parts of the Pacific? Certainly. We do learn from each other. And uh, in 77 and 88, I spent uh, four months each in French Polynesia. And the very first visit, we, we learned about the horror of meconia, the green cancer yeah. that uh, was brought by an American, by the way, to a private garden between the, the, on the isthmus of, at the Jardin Botanique Papayari, they call it now. It's uh, Harrison Smith's Botanical Garden. From there, it, it's covered over half of the landscape of, of Tahiti and moved on to Moria. So after they warned us, uh, we came back to Hawaii, but it still took us six years to convince the agricultural officials that this plant should not continue to be sold in nurseries. Mm-hmm. That it was such a threat, just like Clydemia proved to be a threat after the sugar planters brought it probably in the 40s or so. Uh, it spread from the Waiwa Botanical Garden, which at that time was a sugar planter experiment site into the Kolaos. Otto Degener tells me about finding the first naturalized population of Clydemia. Records about when Myconia first escaped a garden into the Onamea landscape. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, it, it takes less time now to get a plant listed as noxious, but right. uh, we have to resort to biocontrol because you simply cannot mechanically pull up, saw down, and right. poison the stump of the millions of Myconia. Every single one. Testing Maui, and fortunately it's early enough on Oahu, we don't think it's gotten a permanent foothold, but once in a while people still see in the behind Line Arboretum, even the horticulturists, I mean, the, the PhDs that ran Line Arboretum in the, in the 70s, when I said in Tahiti, this is a huge problem. You shouldn't be growing this plant here because the birds are going to poop out the fruits over the landscape and it's going to cover the koalaus. They said, well, we'll keep an eye on it. We can pull them up if we see them. So until that regulation came from the ag department, they had stayed in the garden. And when right. I told Dr. Lamro, the new director, that the, the TV cameras are looking to uh, see what this plant looks like. He said, well, tell them to come up here. We're going to saw it down in front of their cameras. <laughs> nice. nice. I can hear him saying that. You know, he was my professor, too. I was so lucky. Um, yes. Gosh, you're bringing, you're bringing back some memories. I do want to dig into, I think, where Clay was going with this um, when we were talking about weeds, was talking about the natural areas that you've been to and that, that you have, like, maybe particular love for and connection to? I think to start with, uh, my grandfather's farm had a woodlot on it in the Midwest. And to watch the woodpeckers making their nests and to, to see the, the, the plethora of, of dragonflies around the drainage ditch and uh, uh, the, the fact that there were deer mice always present in this one pile of, uh, of logs, that was a, a fascinating time to be able to visit my where my mother grew up and to to uh, share her own personal interest uh, in insects she was always supportive when I learned something new and bought me the for a dollar the golden nature guide of insects <laughs> awesome yeah I remember those little books <laughs> so coming in Hawaii uh, I just keep, kept on going and I think Kipuka Pu'ulu which is a place written up in Joseph Rock's book, Indigenous Trees and One Islands, is a fascinating 30 acres or so that's very accessible now through the national park pathways and signage and fencing. But that's where I've discovered that the Maneli, the giant soapberry trees there, were the the food source when a branch branch broke off, the decaying bark was the food of the native Drosophila. Mm-hmm. And 
Uh, it was there where I, I caught my first goat in Hawaii, barehanded in a thicket, <laughs> was eating some pilo trees, and I converted it into goat burgers with the help of my friends from Texas, uh, what to do with these uh, invaders of the National Park. After that time, with the fences that went up, that was part of the 14,000 that were eventually removed. Wait, um, Steve, Steve, I need to hear more about this barehanded um attack on the first goat in the Manele <laughs> Grove. <laughs> Can you give us a little more detail? It's like mano a mano, mano a whatever, hoof. <laughs> well, the, 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 the Kipuka it still had a fence around it to keep, to keep pigs out because uh, that Kipuka had much richer soil than the surrounding lava, which had a very much younger forest. And it was in that surrounding forest that I encountered the goats uh, and I, I'd seen what they've been doing elsewhere and I realized maybe this is the front line of conservation action and having been a runner in cross country and track uh, it wasn't that difficult in thick vegetation to to jump on it and to uh, <laughs> use my pocket knife to finish it off wow. and, uh, and turn that into the eating meal that is amazing <laughs> um, I don't even know where this is in Hawaii volcanoes I have to admit so can you like well, sketch me a map in my mind the, where the exactly the way that bisects the park comes to a, a, a junction it's called Mauna Loa Road or the Strip Road. Okay. And it's a narrow neck of the park that goes uphill and it ends at around 9,000 feet or so. And you can walk from there up to the summit and okay. make use of the park's cabins. But on the way up, you pass through Kipuka's Pua'ulu and Key. Okay. Which are very well preserved. Uh, yeah. During the, the Second War, the, the ranchers were allowed to put cattle in there. So it's not totally natural, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a good example of a of a mizik or a moist forest. And it was near here that Joseph Rock discovered the Hau Kuhibi that he named for Mr. Gifford. There are a number of other rare things in the uh, Rutaceae family, things uh, like Xanthoxylum. They keep changing the names, uh, but botanists do, but it's called Ai. I, I, I got to get up there. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you like to butterflies, it's the best place, yeah. I think, in the state to see the Kamehameha butterfly or oh. Lepe Lepe Ohina. It uh, makes use of the thousands of Maki plants that, cool. that uh, wow. grow there. Hey, I got a question for you. Just thinking about the, you know, kind of some of these older time stories and stuff. I feel that so much of insect biology is, well, generally overlooked probably relative to the plants as far as what's what's been out there. And what's, I'm just kind of like, if you could paint a picture about what you think that we've missed over the years, just because we haven't had enough kind of eyeballs and trained entomologists and people that really are watching for these changes over time. That's a tough one to know what we missed out. I'm sure there, there, there are lots because we know from Bernie's studies on the Kauai sinkhole at Mahalepu, there are evidences, pollen and fruits and whatnot. He's, he documented that Ko, K-O-U, was present before pollinations arrived because of the, right. the fruits being preserved in that anaerobic environment. And there are actually insect fossils there that showed what kind of beetles and whatnot lived in the, in the coastal areas. From the 1860s or so, we've had African ants, the big-headed ant, especially Fidoli, which has extirpated most of these warmer lowland living species. Once in a while, you can find a little islet uh, off of uh, Kaholavi, for example. There's an, an islet called Pu'u Kauai 
that never had goats on it, and it's covered mm-hmm. with uh, native Colomona shrubs and ojai and things, and it's full of beetles that come out in the wet season. The the flightless weevil called Rinkagonis, mm-hmm. uh, a rather large beetle, and there must be 30 species spread around the on the islands, but. Uh, it's very rare to see them at sea level. There's still a few at Mo'omomi and Molokai and on Lanai at Maneli Bay feeding on the native cotton plants. So we have a sense of, of what's been lost in the lowlands. But I think getting in the field and making these inventories is really crucial. I, I, I think Carl Manyaka is doing some great work in the field yeah. because he's got a quite an expert entomological eye and is bringing to light a lot of new species in his own special groups of Hymenoptera as well as Drosophila. I used to worry uh, while I was in high school and uh, starting out in college that by the time I I got to grad school, there wouldn't be anything left to discover. How naive that was. (laughs) It's it's, it's pretty silly now from this perspective. There's so many things left to be discovered. One question uh, is, where is the Haokuhivi plant on the island of Molokai? Peter Connolly found the last living one on Lanai, and uh, Hank Oppenheimer and his crew came up with the West Maui population. Probably there's going to be one somewhere in the Wainai Mountains. These seemed always to be relic populations. I mean, uh, Hualalai Rock discovered a new one that he named for that volcano. And I don't think it's present in the wild, but it's being propagated quite a bit. And we may be able to get it back in the wild uh, with the restoration that's going on that public land now that we're using it for multiple uses instead of just leasing it, turning it over to some wealthy rancher like Newell Bonnet, who abused it severely during his tenure as a state's lessee. Yeah, assuming too that they don't get burned up. I think um, there was just a fire in West Maui uh, and Hank was concerned there might be some Haokuahivi in that footprint that likely got hit. I mean, some of those plants also might be more resilient to fire than we think, especially those that, that seem to hang on in some of these pretty drier, hotter areas. We've seen, for example, like Ma'ohauhele um, come back after fire and, you know, so there's yes. some resilience. There are still new plants being turned up. And mm-hmm. in, yeah. in 1970, I was able to witness a Brighamia in the Waianae Mountains, way in the back of Makua Valley. Whoa. I had what? permission to explore that area, but didn't have a camera and haven't been back since. So there, there are plenty of wow. things out there. I encourage people to get in the field and, and uh, traverse these new areas. When I told Otto Degner about this in the mid-70s, he said, uh, yeah, I have some scraps of a plant that came from behind Kahulavi in the Pali area. Uh, excuse me, behind the Kotlaus of Kaneohe. And mm-hmm. it looked to me like the leaves of Brighamia, but we never got any fruiting material or flowers to confirm that. And when you look at those flying buttresses that hold up the Kotlaus, there are lots mm-hmm. of holes in the cliffs yeah. hiding that Oh my plant. gosh, yeah. Just as they were hidden on the Napali coast. I understand that we, we don't, we're not aware of any more since the hurricanes have, have uh, and the goats have expanded in Napali. But uh, I, I believe it's worth continuing to search here in the Oahu and even on Lanai where, where Rock did see one a century wow. ago. I, it's so incredible. I mean, I'm just having this vision of... Bergamia, which we all know is a down-at-home depot nowadays, um, <laughs> which it didn't even barely exist, you know, when Steve... Half the, half the households of Denmark have, like, these plants as house plants. Yeah, and then thinking about it, 
in the Ko'olaus is like mind blowing. Like I can't even imagine, you know, it's like, wow, that's, that's pretty neat. I mean, it is so worth, it's like what you're saying. It's so worthwhile to go revisit. When I was working for the National Guard and um, the first TNT survey of the Kanayo area, um, which was super hammered right below the highway, it was the National Guard training area, at least from the state, Pu'u Pimoy, which has just been, you know, hammered by goats, nothing, no fences in the area. But then Joel Lau discovered the arborescent form of the of of the Ojai on that Pu'u, like, like hanging on, you know, like, and someone was with him. I think it may have been Teresa or someone describing like, you know, how he just zoned in on this little like green area. It was just barely left in what was otherwise decimated. And it, anyway, it just makes me think of. Yes. Good for Joel. Yeah. He, he found the last living Ohi Ohi on Lanai oh in an gosh. area that was uh, in that middle, middle belt that uh, managed to survive the deers for, for a long, long time. And on on East Maui, as part of the Oahe Wind Power Survey, I, I did come across a Butylon menziesii plant. And the next year I came back, it had been uh, very much damaged by deer rubbing mm. their antlers to get the velvet off of them crushed. But it was the rootstock was was healthy and hopefully something was done. I showed it to the property owners uh, as a site worth of some spot fencing. So there are lots of treasures out there and uh, um People that are young and healthy should use their legs and find them. Yes. Amen to that. Um, totally. Wow. Um, gosh, we've been all over the place on this questionnaire here, Steve. But um, I'd be interested to hear. It's, I was not aware how much um, kind of outreach you know, that you've done and what are some of the, you know, rewarding experiences you've had in terms of trying to get folks keyed into, well, the body or the insects. In the early 70s, I became a board member of the Conservation Council for Hawaii. And as part of National Wildlife Week, we received uh, teacher's kits that we distributed to the schools. And one year it came in with a, a, a great portrait of a black-tailed deer. And <laughs> that being a, a pest on the island of Kauai and invading the Alakai Swamp Wilderness Preserve, we didn't think it was wise uh, to distribute them. And we sent them back to the continent and did our own posters. And with the leadership of David Boynton, superb educator who unfortunately yeah. was lost in a hiking accident. Uh, for 20 years, we put together Hawaii examples of uh, things that teachers could use about a dry forest or about mm. alien species or, or about wetlands, posters that they could put up with uh, a few pages of materials to, to brief them on the subject. And it was very reassuring when I went in to get my safety sticker in the, in the mechanic shop in Waipahu. There was one of those posters <laughs> no on the way. wall that had been there for, for 10 oh. years or so since we'd given them out in schools and elsewhere to our members. Oh. So we, we want to keep up that tradition. And the Ohia project that, that the muse, museum led under uh, Wayne Gagne and Sheila Conant's leadership has made curriculum available that mm -hmm. doesn't depend on, on squirrels and raccoons. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I loved this picture I pulled up of you, Steve, when I was formulating these questions of you. Um, maybe it was at Bishop or somewhere um, that you were doing night surveys with kids and um, I think maybe you and Anita were, were doing that with the keiki, which is so cool. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And Yes, um, we're often asked by the Nature Center to have an evening program about insects. And uh, it's it's great fun to show up there and set up our light bulb. And as, as night falls, uh, turn it on and, 
and uh, see what comes to the light and help them identify the in the insects. I also take along my my personal insect collection to show them how easy it is mm-hmm. to to pin and dry insects and and learn them how to watch their behaviors and. I try to bring along some old honeycombs. Let's say if I've taken something out of a hive that is full of drone combs, they can open up mm-hmm. the combs and see what these straight stingless male bees look like as they go through their life cycle and see the varroa mite, which is mm-hmm. uh, uh, their biggest pest right now because it passes along bee viruses. So yeah. that's a, a safe way to really get their hands a little dirty, uh, see what field biology is like. And, and what's the reaction? <laughs> Well, we often also bring on some crown flower stems and caterpillars feeding on them and offer them to take some home and they can plant the stem and if it'll root, they can raise their own butterfly magnet. So mm-hmm. um, I think that experience of watching the miraculous transformation from a caterpillar to a chrysalis to a butterfly yeah. will get them paying attention to the world around them. That's great. That's great. We've also done a lot of interactions with policymakers, as you were saying, and I'm kind of curious, you know, if you stumble into the legislature or something like that. I mean, and the reason I'm coming from this, I think, is there's a it's a bit of a, of a bandwagon or trend like nowadays in science to kind of reduce these value of ecosystems as services, right? That's what everyone's trying. Oh, it's this much water, this much sediment retention. And I'm kind of like, you know, I always come back or push back, even though I'm guilty of like working on these very same things. But, you know, you, you have all these decisions and the people that are doing this work and love this work, it's really about the all the components of the whole thing, right? It's the, all the species that are out there and the plants and the insects and everything, birds. And so I'm just curious how you have navigated those conversations with people who, you know, are in those positions of power potentially. Well, from the beginning, I've felt it's important to to be a responsible citizen and educate the people who claim to represent me in the legislature. <laughs> and uh, when they come awesome. to my door, I, I talk to them and, and follow yeah. up with them and write them memos and visit them. And I've had uh, really re- rewarding results from that approach. Uh, I think I mentioned that late Senator Nadal Yoshinaga was responsible for the the Natural Areas Commission Act and the Animal Species Advisory Commission that was set up to deal with these proposals to spread deer around the archipelago and the white-winged pheasant. There was another proposal that it reviewed and, and, and rejected. So I had heard that his son was studying ecology at Stanford and, and I'd heard that he had set up a scientific study committee to look at the idea of, of a model like the Wisconsin scientific areas. So it's been so rewarding to work with uh, thoughtful leaders like him. Uh, I didn't hesitate when, when Maisie Hirono asked me to help in her first campaign. I knew her when she was uh, a UH student and went off to law school and to visit her when I was in Washington. I had to go to the law library because she was so hard at work uh, <laughs> getting ready for her exams. She's yeah. always been a hard worker and been very responsive. So even though her especially might have been consumer protection and civil rights and environmental records. She's also built an excellent one. So I would I would mm-hmm. say that it's important for people to interact with the people you you vote for yeah. and succeed. Uh, oh, she's a generalist, and I don't hesitate when I learn something that I think is important improvement in public policy to to share it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Steve, um, 
like switching gears a little bit, um, I want to ask you my just for fun question, which is not a fair question. I always go into this saying, I know that you probably have a million burning questions about nature and, you know, being someone who's observed, observed, observed for a very long time. But is there one that you wish you had more time to get to know? Well, I think I'm in a position having earned a doctorate on the behavior of, of killer caterpillars. Uh, there are about a dozen of them where we know exactly where the caterpillars live in their ambuscades yeah. are easily found on leaf edges, for example, the most common one blends in so well with the leaf edge. But when I was in a remote area between Hana and the Halakana National Park on the mm-hmm. rim of that crater, I, I had a light which brought in a, a beautiful orange moth, just an inch across. And that female laid a few eggs and those eggs hatched and the larva I could tell from its long legs and its behavior, I, I raised it to uh, adult stage and got males and females. But I have no idea where that caterpillar hides because we were searching for three days straight for any caterpillars we could we could collect. That one and the one we knew looked like a liverwort, we failed to find on that trip. So I want to solve that puzzle is, is where does the caterpillar hide to evade the birds and the, and the bug catchers like me to be so effective? Oh, that's so interesting. And what's the caterpillar species? It's unnamed. It's unnamed. Okay. All right. When was that? We have a few specimens from that trip, which took place in about 1979. And those specimens are awaiting in the museum to get a few more. And fresh specimens will allow us to do some DNA work. And it's so distinctive looking as an adult, how to place it among the others uh, in the 20 species could be answered by some uh, biochemical work. But uh, for me, as a field biologist, I'd like to know how it divides up the environment. I mean, we know there are some caterpillars that are only on leaf Mm -hmm. litter on the ground, some that only on twigs that come out at night Mm -hmm. on bare twigs and look like a twig themselves. And others are in flowers that normal caterpillars eating the blossoms of the Hiolehua, for example, or Pukiave. But where does the caterpillar of the orange moth hide? That's a mystery I want to solve. Now I'm like, I want to paint them (laughs) off. (laughs) Do you have any pictures? Not a good one. You'll have to go to the museum to look at the specimen. mystery of the orange moth. Oh, that's worth the trip. That go, is go worth pull a trip. Out the, yeah, pull out some specimens at the museum. Oh my goodness! Wow, wow, that's an amazing um, story. And now I'm super intrigued. Also, Clay, did you have anything else you wanted to ask Steve here as we close? You know, it fascinates me. And as having worked kind of as a field botanist too, of just like how you balance with insects, I imagine getting all these specimens and then kind of balancing that with the, their identification and classification and description. Have you felt frustrated? There's such a huge need again to catalog, as you said, and be kind of, you know, getting out into these places and seeing what's there and then not having the capacity again, just as a kind of in society in, investing in science to like be able to even keep up with what it is you're finding in these places. Well, science is a very much a communal effort and publishing and cooperating and sharing specimens with specialists is is a vital thing to do. When I was um, hiking in the back of Kalalau Valley in a a steep area where the goats were coming up from the bottom and and feeding on the native music plants, I saw a daisy that I recognized as probably being Remia and 
thought it would be a new locality. It's quite a rare plant on Kauai. And then there was a mint, a fuzzy little native mint. And I took them both into the museum when I came back to Oahu, and they properly examined them and told me that, well, that's not Remia kauaiensis. It's a new one, and we're going to call it Remia montgomerii. And the mint was sent off to a specialist, and it also was described as a species campanulata. So if a non-botanist can find two nieces, new species of plant in, a, in an area, <laughs> then it must be something worthy about it. So I, I brought in some other people who were more skilled at, at botany. Tim Flynn, for example, of the National Guard. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I just uh, talked to him yesterday. And then uh, Ken Wood was just getting interested in doing field work. Mm. David Boynton t- took us to breakfast and I said, you know, with your ropes and your skills, <laughs> arboreally, why don't we go down this one ridge where I see the goats running down there all the time? Um, maybe with a rope, we can go t- see what's down there. And we did that. It was fa- fairly steep and Boynton decided to go home early. It, he was a bit acrophobic, but Ken uh, <laughs> Wood and I went down and, and sure enough, as soon as I turned around, I saw the leaf of a heart-shaped how-looking plant. I said, it looks like how-kuahivi. And Ken put the rope, uh, just moving over slightly and went down and examined it and brought back a yellow flower, which uh, we took back and and, uh, it wasn't in the manual. Took it to David Laurence at the headquarters of the garden and the next Monday, David went up to, to see it himself. That was a new species now named Hibiscadelphus woodyi. Right. So th- yeah. this is a very, very rich area. And the Conservation Council was able to fund more explorations by, by Ken and his, his helpers. Mm-hmm. We've come up with quite a few new species there and prioritized some way we could keep the goats from further decimating. Because some of these habitats were only preserved because the goats found them so vertical, they couldn't navigate right. them. I mean, when I reached up, it was just above the goat zone that I found the Remia Montgomery ice wow. specimens that were brought in. So we've got some time on the perpendicular Kauai uh, with vertical plot. <laughs> yeah. Steve, as we close, is there anything more that you wanted to add or uh, say at, at, to our listeners, you know, about anything at all? The next um, bug collecting night. The next. <laughs> yes. When is the next one? Do we know? <laughs> well, you have to call the Nature Center and uh, sign up. Okay. They, they, they get filled up pretty quickly, but uh, they do it about twice a year and uh, parents especially are allowed to come if they if they bring some children but uh, you can't go without children I, I qualify them <laughs> I think it's a great time to be a field biologist in Hawaii you can spend your time wringing your hands about what's been lost but uh, there's a, a great deal out there to be discovered and to be saved mm-hmm. and uh, we've made so much progress since the 70s I think people should be encouraged. It's time to jump in there and uh, help uh, these these species survive into the next century. Yeah, yeah. A, lot of, a lot of work to be done, indeed. Yeah. Well, gosh, thank you so much, Steve. This has been super fun to go down the memory lane and to just hear your stories. Clay, do you want to talk about the sleeping bag or no? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, so I worked at NTBG and I was doing going out in the field with Steve Perlman and stuff, and he has this story. He probably told it to me like five times about (laughs) his sleeping bag (laughs) stash in the Marquesas. I think it was the Marquesas, maybe, or Rapa. I don't know which island it was. And he was telling me that, yeah, he he said that you used a sleeping bag but didn't put it away or something. And he is still <laughs> hung up about that his sleeping bag. The next time he went up, his sleeping bag got all wet. Or, and I, 
I swear, I think you told it to me at least five times. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. <laughs> the things that we well, remember, right? You didn't do much sleeping. Uh, when you're doing insects, you need to run lights at night and collect them. Right. So it's, it's hard to get sleep when you're in the field. And I have no no memory of that incident. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll do a, we'll do a, like a, re, a revisit. We'll bring Steve back because we, yeah. he was our person. We'll bring him back and you back and we can try to remember what the heck happened in the Marquesas. <laughs> sure. we can, and we can have Steve read his poetry and, and you guys can talk about the sleeping bag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you again, Steve. Um, it's been super fun. And um, yeah, we really appreciate your time. It was really fun. And I'm, I hope we get to meet, um, you know, offline somewhere in the in, in three dimensions. Yes, indeed. 